0: Borealis Entertainment presents Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home A podcast and a memoir by M.K. Lott Chapter 26 The Watch List So, today, we are starting with a very heavy hitter this time around. And that heavy hitter is Boys in the Hood. I couldn't help but feel like this was kind of a Shakespearean story to watch the way the characters were written the way the plot goes down even the way the locations are designed and based on the research that I found it's not based on any previous Shakespearean play I think it's somewhat autobiographical but I mean you could have fooled me this was a film that I think introduced a lot of African American actors that we know and love today and even if it wasn't their big break, this was definitely like one of their highlights in the early parts of their careers. Uh, people like Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, Lawrence Fishburne, who was probably my favorite character in the movie, and this is probably my favorite Lawrence Fishburne performance. Period. Regina King and Angela Bassett, just to name a few, and not to mention the director for this film, who passed away a few years ago. Actually, I think his name was John Singleton was the youngest person and the first African American to be nominated for the Oscar for Best Director. Now, I don't really like the Oscars. I don't like the politics that kind of go into it, but that's a huge step in the right direction, which is awesome. And granted, if you watch this film, you'll see parts of it that have been parodied over and over again to where it's now a cliche. But I would go so far as to say that Boys in the Hood is a mandatory watch, especially for Americans. Maybe it's just because I was raised Mormon and I currently live in Utah, but I'm not Mormon anymore. But this is a world that I wish I grew up knowing more about, just be better informed. I think it's an understatement to say this is an important film, almost in the same way that I felt like the best years of our lives was an important film because it showed what home is like for a soldier. And I think for the time, this was a film that really showed what black communities in 1990s America was like. You know, And then later we saw, well, I shouldn't say later, but I think around the same time, we saw people like Spike Lee really start putting a magnifying glass on this way of life. And now that conversation is had, and it's, it's such a good thing that we have stories that are able to open up this dialogue. And then on a very, very different note, the next film I watched after that was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. This film made me realize that I am very much a man of my time, because I already knew some of the jokes in the film were a commentary on gender roles in noir films, but it didn't stop me from being super uncomfortable and cringing around certain sexual jokes, and I just remember thinking, ugh, ugh. times really have changed. And don't get me wrong, I love Carl Reiner and I think a lot of the stuff that he did with Mill Brooks is untouchable to this day. But that being said, there's a lot that just doesn't land anymore. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid had the same problem that I was expecting It's a Mad, 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 Mad World to have, where it may have been funny for its time, but it did not age well at all. And I think it relies really heavily on the performance of the actors. I mean, at times, this film feels like Steve Martin doing a 100-mile hike with a backpack full of rocks. He was just carrying everything on his shoulders. But there's a lot of things that either just didn't work for me, or I thought to myself, I know what they're trying to do. I love the idea of that, and in that regard, I liked it. But if those were taken out of the equation, I wouldn't have dug this joke. But I gotta give it credit because I really liked how they played with the idea of using black and white to have Steve Martin interact with classic actors. But the classic actors are all in stock footage from other noir films. And in that way, I would show this to people as a way to demonstrate how film can be used as more of a creative medium than you might initially see it as. So in that way, I found value in this film. And then the next film, was Nightbreed, and this one I also had a tough time liking when I first saw it. I really like the way Clive Barker imagines worlds and certain characters, and I mean one of my favorite horror films of all time is Hellraiser, which is based off of his book The Hellbound Heart, and I became really intrigued by Barker using the underworld trope to make a story. Like for anybody who's Bookworm, I would say this is his equivalent to Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, and I did like the fact that he got David Cronenberg as an actor in this film, but other than that, there wasn't much that really did it for me in this film, but I think if you're a Clive Barker fan, you should still watch this, but I think it shows its age because it's very much a 90s horror film. And while I haven't read the original story, which I think is called Cabal, I can help but feel like the written word might be your best bet on this one. Although, there is a lot of really good practical effects in this film. Like, if you want to learn how to do fun makeup and prosthetics, or even the gorier, splattier, bloodier stuff, then I would suggest that you watch this movie and try to figure out how they did it. next film I watched was Journey to the West and I don't think a lot of people would be familiar with this name but I was especially excited for this film because it's directed by Stephen Chow and Stephen Chow is one of my favorite non-American directors because he is a master at slapstick comedy. If there's anyone out there who's savvy with foreign films this is the guy who did Kung Fu Hustle and Shaolin Soccer the latter of which I grew up on and still love to this day. There's actually a really good video essay from the YouTube channel Accented Cinema, which explains what makes Stephen Chow such a brilliant comedic writer, but this film is an example of when done right, comedy is universal. So I didn't know this until I looked it up to confirm that it was a Stephen Chow film, but this is also based on a Chinese novel from the 16th century, just played for laughs. More specifically, it's about a demon hunter who believes that pacifism and redemption is the way of taking care of monsters and demons, which is noble. He's a noble Buddhist monk, but in the film, for all the other demon hunters who kill and capture the demons, he's kind of a pussy, and that's hilarious, which that's what makes Stephen chow so great to me and why i would use him as a go-to inspiration for people wanting to learn how to write comedy he takes what is typically expected in a situation and a joke in general and he puts it on a path that makes perfect sense in retrospect but you would have never guessed in the moment that's all i'm gonna say about it for now i would seriously recommend you go check this one out if you want to see what foreign comedy is like, if you're an American. And if you can find it, I'll probably challenge myself to find a copy of this as well. But I would say check out the original 16th century story if there's a copy in your first language. It actually might be a cool experience. And the next film I watched was Dante's Inferno. And I knew going into this, what this film was, which it's a cartoon to promote a video game that was coming out at the time, which I think they also did with Dead Space, but I'm not sure if they did it with any other games. And so if you think that Dante's Inferno is based on the Divine Comedy by, I'm gonna butcher his name, but Dante Alighieri, uh, you would be right, you're definitely right. But more specifically, it's based on a video game that came out in the 2010s, maybe late 2000s, that was based on the part of the Divine Comedy that everybody is familiar with to some degree. The game was a kind of video game called a hack and slash, where the objective is to essentially just walk around and slice everything in your path. Think God of War, but in the Crusades, or more specifically, Think God of War, but in Hell. But the big thing that really drew me to this film and kept me engaged was the animation style. Because there were multiple animation styles. Every time Dante descends further into Hell through The Rings, the animation style changes, even if it's slight or it goes back to another style from before. And if I were to take an educated guess I would say that was for budget purposes. So the main production company would outsource their work to overseas animation studios to do all the dirty work. Which, that is such a common practice in the animation industry, it's basically inevitable. But I think it makes for something of a happy accident because it adds more value to the film, I think. And the fact that this was made almost a decade before the Spider-Verse movies which those movies are kind of recognized as like, there's more to animation than just cute Disney or anime. There's a happy medium somewhere. But I just think it makes it even more of a bummer to me that not more people know about this film. And I think that's just me really showing my fandom of animation because as a hobby I'm trying to learn and and develop animated movies and so I can appreciate it in a new light but I think showing people what that looks like when you know there's not a big studio behind it is in some ways more inspiring than the studio movies that come out Now, speaking of studios, the next film I saw was Freaked. And there were three things that intrigued me about this film, its practical effects, its rarity, and its controversy. I heard about Freaked after watching a Cinefix video that only showed the film in passing for maybe two seconds but that was enough to hook me. So it turns out, Alex Winters, after starring next to Keanu Reeves in Bill & Ted's Excellent Adventure, had enough of a reputation to make the film Freaked. And it turns out that Freaked was so bad and so terrible, the studio did everything in its power to cease distribution, to take in every copy and to basically erase this film from existence. So much so, the only person who remembers this film before the internet was probably Winters himself. Now, you may be wondering how did I find it? And the answer is well, the studio never took into account for digital replications. More specifically Replications that could be found for free on YouTube. The entire film is on there. And then a really, really used copy on Amazon showed up for maybe 15 bucks. So, I watched it, I saw the whole thing, and I get why people wouldn't like it, but I think the studio made a bad choice in trying to get rid of Freaked. This is easily the funniest movie I saw this month. It's just so ridiculous you can't take it seriously, and so when you suspend that disbelief and recognize that it's a silly movie made by silly people, you have a good time with it. I would probably put this if I were to do like a playlist of sorts, I would put Freaked on the same playlist as like Basketball or The Naked Gun or The Airplane Movies. It's that kind of humor. And so I don't know when this situation would show up, if at all, but if there was someone who came up to me and asked me to show them a movie that is misunderstood, but worth watching, this is the top of the list by far. And the next film, and the last film I'm going to be talking about for this episode, was Friday. And this wasn't my intention, but I guess it's pretty fitting that if we started with Boys in the Hood, then we end with Friday. Just because it's the same subject matter, but not thematically, but tonally, it's flipping it on its head. And also, it was a total coincidence that I watched Freaked and then Friday because I was reading the script and I just thought, why does Freaked Friday sound close but still wrong? (laughs) But anyways, for everyone in my generation, they would recognize Friday as the movie that gave us memes of stuff like, (laughs) like Chris Tucker going, you got knocked the fuck out! And both him and Ice Cube going, damn! This is that movie. That and the main bad guy in this film is also, for all the cinephiles of my generation, the president in the fifth element and the criminal who chucks the detonator out the window in the dark night. He's the really, really big, intimidating dude. I think he had like crossed eyes. At least that's what it looked like. But he always like spoke in a very, very soft tone in the dark night and he just said, You can tell them i took it by force give it to me you know that that kind of thing that's him he's like the neighborhood bully in this and he like rides around in a bicycle it's it's awesome but like i said before this felt like the more comedic version of boys in the hood where it was just a world that i was unfamiliar with and it made me glad that films like this existed because i was able to be made aware of this world Not necessarily understand like I was there because I don't think I ever could, but experience a new story which is really fun to me. And I think in that way, that's what makes storytelling so powerful. It helps you discover voices and parts of the world you wouldn't have otherwise known. Now, now that I've said all that, Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home. I hope this episode leaves you better than it found you and gives you some ideas for films to watch. And uh, stay tuned for the next batch of recommendations. I got about two more episodes worth, and then we'll be back on the usual programming, the usual formatting, and then uh, yeah, just ticking down to our last episode. But thank you as always. And until next time, here's to finding your way.